Hey everybody, this is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the InBasic Podcast. Today we have another installment of the InBasic Project from Dr. Shana Gifford. For this episode, she will be interviewing Dr. Chrisanna Mink, an infectious disease doctor from UCLA Harbor, on the topic of measles. We thought we had eliminated this disease threat years ago with vaccination, but the recent outbreaks from Disneyland and other places have shown us that the misinformed and vocal anti-vaccine movement has made it possible for this disease to reemerge as an occasional threat. In this episode, they will talk about how to recognize measles in the undifferentiated ED patient, how to order the right tests, the importance of speaking with your public health colleagues, and how to provide the best care and treatment for these patients. As always, this podcast is represent the views of the of Defense, the U.S. Army, the Shawshanky Emergency Program. With that done, here's Dr. Shana Gifford and Dr. Chrisanna Mink on measles. This is Dr. Shana Gifford. I'm very pleased to be joined today by pediatric infectious disease expert, Dr. Chris Anna Mink from UCLA Harbor. Dr. Mink, thank you for coming. Shana, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Dr. Mink has no conflicts of interest to disclose, nor do I. And we'd like to say that this podcast reflects our own opinions, not that of USC, where it's being recorded, or UCLA Harbor. Los Angeles uh, being a hotbed of reemerging infectious disease, this seemed like the perfect place to come to catch measles and other reemerging infectious diseases in the act. So we're going to focus today specifically on the measles portion of the reemergence. Um, we're not going to discuss why this is happening right now. If you want to know why, Dr. Mink wrote a great column about it that's on the USC Science Desk, and you can read it. What we're going to talk about today is more how to know if what you're looking at is measles and what to do if what you turn out to be looking at is measles. So before we even go into that, though, I'd like to ask, when in the history and physical, Dr. Mink, should we be asking about vaccination status? I personally like to ask, right, pretty much from the beginning. It helps me know if I do need to put anyone into isolation or protective isolation. Okay, very good. Um, you know, even as on a child and adult, um, are you asking on both children and adults these days? Are you asking on everybody who comes through the door? Many hospitals have instituted a policy to ask right when they come in the door. Generally, I only see children, but sometimes I see families. And in that case, yes, I'll ask both children and adults. Okay. Um, asking about their immunizations is one of my very first questions. Number two is animal exposures. And then have they been traveling out of the area or any known exposures? Those things all help me know what are the disease possibilities for this kid and what are the contagious risks for these children the children that I'm seeing. Okay, great. And before we get on to the differential and the signs and symptoms, can you recommend a diplomatic yet efficacious way to ask about vaccine status? I just ask. <laughs> <laughs> and the only thing that I would really like to point out is um, most people like to say, are your vaccines up to date? Mm -hmm. Families know yes is the right answer. So that's not the way to ask. Mm -hmm. I try to find other ways to ask. Um, do you have your vaccine card? When was the last time your child saw the doctor? Did he get shots or she get shots at that visit? So just asking straight, are your shots up to date, may not give you the best answer. Okay. Do you go by the general rule that if it's not written down, it's not proven? Absolutely. All right, especially for adults, right? Especially for adults. And a quick note for those born before 1956, it is likely that they had natural measles. Okay, and for reference, before we go on, most of us aren't primary care providers. Children should receive their first MMR at 12 to 15 months and their second at four to six years. Is that about correct, Dr. Ming? Yes, it is. Okay. So now we get to move on to measles presentation, uh, workup, testing, and treatment. 
And we followed Dr. Mink's advice. We did a good HNP and discovered, after learning the child's name, date of birth, and chief complaint, that in fact they are not vaccinated. And their chief complaint is a febrile URI. Now what? All right, we're going to mask up and guard up because we know that our child has this complaint and that they're not vaccinated. We look into the oropharynx and there we spy small, irregular red spots with blue and white centers. Dun, dun, dun. Coplic spots. Pathognomonic for measles. Now, Dr. Mink, to me and to many of us listening, this is only something that exists in pictures. So what does it look like in real life? Your description is really very nicely stated on on those little um, red spots with sort of a bluish discoloration. Perfect. You see them two to three days before the rash, but I have to tell you they're pretty subtle and often not visible. Um, And we rarely realistically get to see them. Okay, great. Now, Rosens, if you all, for all you all who are listening or reading Rosens, will say that they're going to be near the molars. But as Dr. Mink said, it also describes in the book that it can be very, very subtle. And they can be anywhere in the oropharynx, really anywhere. Now, uh, Dr. Mink just said that they would be difficult to appreciate. Would there ever be, Dr. Mink, a case of measles without coplic spots? Yes. Okay. The coplic spots may have happened before the child seeks medical care. So you may easily diagnose a case without ever seeing those coplic spots. All right. But if you do see them, that's pathognomonic. Pathognomonic. Okay. And for reference, ladies and gentlemen at home, we've included photos of coplic spots in the show notes. And generally speaking, the definition of measles is cough, coryza, conjunctivitis, and coplic spots. So if you've got all four, you've got measles. That wonderful, highly infectious disease spread by droplets. Those droplets can hang out in the air for how long, Dr. Mink? They actually can hang out for at least two hours. So if you have a patient who's in your ambulance or in your uh, ER waiting room or in your ER exam room, that really should be closed off for two hours and properly cleaned. Okay. Very good. And the incubation period in measles is a lot longer um, compared to many common respiratory viruses. How long is it, Dr. Mink? It can last up to 20 days, but usually it's about 10 days. 10 days incubation period. And for added fun, people who have contracted measles are infectious for up to four days before they show symptoms. So this patient in front of us, in this case, right here, right now, is symptomatic of measles. So they've probably been infected with measles for the last two weeks and could have been spreading it around for as long as four days. And this cough and these spots we're seeing in this patient right now, are those the first symptoms, the cough and the spots? The first things we usually see are fever and malaise, and the fever can be quite high. Um, It generally starts, you know, a little bit low, but can get up to 103, 105 easily. Okay. And how long will that fever last? (laughs) The fever tends to wane around four days, um, but the worst is really in the first couple of days, generally speaking. Okay. So look for high fever for the first couple of days, followed by the onset of the cough and the spots. Is that about right? That's about right. Okay. And um, how long before the coryza and conjunctivitis appear on the scene after that fever, that high fever shows up? You generally start with the following day or so. Okay. So spike a high fever, start with the cough, then the conjunctivitis, then the coryza. You get all three within 24 hours. Okay. And for the folks at home, measles is in the same family that causes croup, bronchiolitis. That's the paramyxovirus family. So you're always going to see a cough. Generally, you won't have a cough without measles. Is that right? Pretty much. You can have some milder or atypical cases, especially if it's an immunocompromised patient. 
but generally the cough is there. Okay. So our patient clearly has measles and has been symptomatic for at least 48 hours. Now what, Dr. Mink? Um, what do we do? Assuming we've already consulted you, the crying is over, what do we do now? Well, definitely you want prompt isolation um, and then appropriate decontamination of any places where the patient has been. And, you know, what's scary about measles, it's at least 90% uh, contagious to those who are susceptible. So you want to definitely take quick action. Um, and even if you don't have all the pieces to make you think that it's measles, if you've got enough of them to be worried, take precautions. And what would you qualify enough to be worried? Fever, cough, and a rash right okay. there, you know. Uh, any more in current times when we do have so many measles cases, um, just have high alert. Fever, cough, and a rash in an unvaccinated individual? Even if they've been vaccinated right now, fever, cough, and rash is enough to make me be extra cautious. Mm. I'd rather err on the side of caution and not have them around other kids in my ER waiting area um, than think, oh, it's another one of those viruses that we see this time of year. I'd right. just be cautious. All right. Now, I know you've been here with me on a fellowship at USC. You've had some colleagues down at UCLA Harbor that have been called in to consult on these cases, right? Yes, because so many viruses cause fever, cough, and rash that it's hard to know. And we, as infectious disease specialists, would much rather people be cautious, as I've already said. Okay. So, and we've had a couple of calls. Um, one was Kawasaki's, which can look a little confusing, but I'm glad the that the residents and the practitioners are thinking about measles. Okay, so you've got a child, maybe they have been vaccinated, but you have a high fever, a cough and a rash. You as a pediatric disease specialist would like to be consulted. Okay, Yes. you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about Kawasaki's and the other um, possible you know, confounding um, diseases in a little while. So back to this child in front of us, and you know, they've got several of the symptoms, but maybe not the rash yet. When does that viral exanthem, the rash that heralds measles and a host of those other childhood diseases, when does that show up? Generally, after the coptic spots have disappeared, um, two to three days into it, you're going to start seeing the rash. And that's usually when the kids are going to come, to, or anyone, sorry, I'm used to seeing children, <laughs> that's when the uh, individual will come to medical attention. Okay. The rash pops up and people are alarmed. Okay. So that's so note at home. Usually the rash will cause them to be admitted to you with that as a chief complaint, but the history that may then reveal that in the preceding days, they've had that high spiking fever, the cough, the chorizon, the conjunctivitis. And to describe the rash, Rosens describes it as a typically maculopapular rash with very fine bumps, which starts around the head and the hairline and spreads down the torso and out to all extremities, that typical centripetal spread. Is that right? Classic. Classic. Okay, day three to five of their of their active disease, not including the four unactive days yes. in which they were asymptomatic. We're going to include um, pictures of that rash in the show notes. So for those listening at home, you see that rash, and they say, you know, I've got this rash, and it started around my hairline, and it spread down to my torso, and now it's in my hands. Here we go. Oh, no. Oh, no is right. And the other thing, especially for children, they look miserable, and they look ill. Okay. So they look toxic. Yeah. Okay. So um, the measles, again, just review, starts with, you know, starts asymptomatic. Then they get the fever, the malaise, the cough, coryza, the conjunctivitis, the coplet spots, then this viral exanthem on the face, the trunk, then the limbs down to the feet. The rash will last a few days, maybe five or six days, and then fade into a brawny brownish appearance 
right? That's right. And that, that brawny brown description is perfect. Um, it almost looks like an underlying bruise um, and discoloration of even where there isn't rash visible anymore. Again, it's classic textbook when you see it look like that. But of course, you should still be on, on the alert for all kind of things. Of course. And it fades the same way it came, right? Starting at the hairline start, and then down. Start up, moving out. Okay. Um, and then what? So after, after that fades, what happens? You cross your fingers and hope that there are no significant consequences for your patient. Okay. Um, one of the most common we see is otitis. The one that we really worry about um, is pneumonitis, where you know the measles virus actually can get into the lungs. That's the uh, part of the brownie cough, potentially. Um, laryngotracheal um, laryngitis, you know, it, pretty much any part of the respiratory tree can be involved and can be pretty noticeable. The other thing we worry about a lot um, with the compromise in the respiratory tree is pneumonia, mm -hmm. which is one of the leading causes of death worldwide associated with measles. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we worry about the neurologic complications where you can have encephalitis. It happens about one in a thousand kids. Um, and there are a few other um, sort of central nervous system diseases that show up later. We can talk about that a little bit more. You mean the panencephalitis? Yeah. Okay. So um, measles is not a simple rash disease. It's very serious. Yeah, and for those at home, that encephalitis does occur in one in a 1,000 patients who are affected by measles, and the mortality is 15%. So what do we do for these patients, Dr. Mink? You want to go over them head to toe. You don't want to miss if there's some respiratory compromise. You don't want to miss an otitis media. You don't want to miss a secondary complication. Um, you need to be looking at them um, all over, inside and out. <laughs> okay, whip out the scopes. And um, if there's any sign of um, sort of sort of bacterial infection brewing in any of the orifices or on the skin, what then? That's when you really get concerned about a secondary bacterial complication. And as I mentioned, pneumonia is one of the more common ones. You, it's really hard to separate out a pneumonitis, which we always think of as a general diffuse uh, disease in the lungs, versus a lobar secondary bacterial infection. So if they would do it like that, patients rarely you know, cooperate with the textbook. Why can't the super <laughs> infection look like it's supposed to look like? Right. But if there is that lobar disease present, um, those kids merit admission and uh, antibacterial um, treatment after, of course, you've completed your full workup looking for uh, bacterial pathogens. Okay. So you want to you um, send for bloods? Any particular tests that you would order? I, I tend, when I have a little one with measles, because I actually was practicing during the 1989 uh, outbreak in California, so I have seen measles, even though I'm a little bit younger than some who have. Um, we did the full sepsis workup. We, we because the babies, especially the babies, um, look so ill. You can't tell have they um, a secondary bacterial bloodstream infection or, or if it's pneumonia. So we do blood, we do urine, um, and a lot of times you're going to need the LP because you can't tell, especially the younger they are, if um, they're just irritable because they're so sick with their measles or if there is central nervous system disease. So a full sepsis workup would okay. be necessary. Pan culture. Okay. Pan culture. Sounds good. Okay. So you've heard it here. Uh, for these people, um, child and adult, to pan culture, or you think mostly just kids? Mostly um, looking that ill are the under five. Mm. Interestingly, for some adults over 20, they can also look quite compromised. But um, you, 
you're more at risk as a young, uh, a young age. Gotcha. Okay. Below five, pan culture. We can remember this. <laughs> All right. And what do you recommend after we've done the pan culture by way of antibiotics? If it's a straightforward otitis and the kid looks well enough to go home, their augmentin is, is a totally reasonable. If it's the first time they've ever had an otitis, amoxicillin may be even okay. Um, I would follow along sort of the standard treatment that we're all accustomed to doing in a, in a primary care setting. And, and certainly ER physicians are very familiar with uh, ear infections in children since that's one of the biggest reasons they come to you. Um, if there's pneumonia, I do go more towards augmentin um, than amoxicillin just because of concern of resistant strep pneumo. Um, However, I have to tell you, if there's pneumonia, my tendency is for them to be in-house, certainly if they're very young or very old or compromised. Okay, very good. And just quickly, before we go on to IVIG and what the other things we do for people who are compromised and have either been exposed or have the disease actively, I want to just touch on the role of vitamin A. This is mentioned in Rosen's. The World Health Organization has recommended treating all children, regardless of location in the world, with vitamin A because it decreases morbidity and mortality. How would you give that vitamin A? The um, Actually, American Academy of Pediatrics recommends it um, following along the WHA guidelines for U.S. kids as well. Um, the dosing, I, I would have to tell you that I would just look up the standard di- the dosing um, either from the CDC website or the AAP website or whichever app you are accustomed to using. Okay. Yeah. So even if there is no super infection, maybe they're only maybe they're not even looking that toxic. They're just kind of miserable. You're gonna have them follow up with their pediatrician. Would you give them the vitamin A before they went home in the ED? For those kind of kids, if they're already well into it, they already have the rash and they look pretty well nourished, you can consider just having them take a multivitamin that has adequate sufficient doses of A in it. Um, most of the time when we think about administering vitamin A, it's for kids that are compromised such that we admit them. But, you know, we're kind of in new territory. The vitamin A recommendations have come out since the last time we had a measles outbreak. So this is this is new for the U.S. Since the last time before this time we had yeah, the measles Since outbreak. the last time before this time, yes. Gotcha. yes. All right. So let's say they are immune compromised. We want to give them vitamin A, and maybe we want to give them um, human immune globulin. When do we reach for the Ig? Um, the Ig can be used for people that have been exposed within six days of their exposure. Um, particularly vulnerable include the very young infants, pregnancy, and as we keep talking about, the immunocompromised. Okay. And at what stage, now we'll get back to your previous point about tapping, at what, sh- at what sort of stage of altered mental status do we tap these kids and go looking for an encephalitis? You mentioned the young ones who tend to be irritable. What you know? What is sort of your index of suspicion? What what index of suspicion would you like us to maintain before we go tapping these kids? I have a pretty low index suspicion for looking for encephalitis with um, kids that have measles. It is sometimes very hard to sort out why they're irritable. Measles is a miserable disease, and it's easy for them to just present irritable because they feel so badly. So any CNS signs, any alteration, infants that are too young for me to assess, my I'm very conservative. I have a low threshold. And the reason it matters to me, even though I might not have specific anti-measles treatment, is there is some use in um, in predicting uh, long-term consequences okay. if there is encephalitis. Okay. So we were discussing that the, the greatest adverse consequences are in the population of children under five. If these children appear highly toxic or irritable, you will tap. And then you'd send for full workup? 
I do. Um, okay. I do. Sounds like you do. Um, the, you know, you look for the glucose, you look for the protein, you look for the cell count. Any special staining or anything that you do? You can actually do PCR, mm-hmm. um, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a little bit. But most of those kind of tests would be not done in the community hospital. They would be done in collaboration with your public health lab or the CDC. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about it now then. Um, what if we do do the tap and we find low glucose or high protein and, or a high you know, white count? What then? I What then as far as diagnostics? Mm-hmm. I would try and um, save a tube if you can get extra fluid and freeze it and then um, try and work with public health to see if they would like to do the PCR because, as I mentioned, most of our community hospitals don't have that resource available to them readily. Okay. It doesn't necessarily change your management. Okay. It's not impacting management in the house. It's right. one of those long-term predictor issues right. to help uh, primary care follow-up management. Right. Okay. Understood. So if we can get enough fluid, and I don't know about you, but I usually don't get extra tubes of fluid when I tap kids. When they tap the babies. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But they don't actually need that much. Um but we always say if you can, get a whole CC. Okay. Well, that's something to shoot for. All right. So then there's the what we can do for the kids who aren't directly in front of us in RED on a bed. Um, the non-vaccinated kids who go to school and have played with this kid over the last 20 days. Um, we, they get the live measles vaccine. So the live measles vaccine should be given to these kids within 72 hours, if we can, of exposure in order to prevent the measles. What do we do about those few kids who can't get the vaccine for legitimate medical reasons? This is another time when the use of immune globulin comes in. And if you don't have Ig that can be given IM, you can certainly use IV Ig. And there are standardized dosing. Um, healthy infants should get 0.25 ml per kilo of IM immunoglobulin and Older children can get up to 15 mLs. Again, their dose should be about 0.5 mLs per kilo. Okay, great. And like you said before, 90% of exposed persons who are unprotected, either because they're immune compromised or their titers simply never rose or have dipped since they were vaccinated, are going to get measles. Is that correct? You can count on it. It's As I mentioned, it's one of the most contagious infectious diseases that we know. Humans are the only host, and it's 90% if you're uh, vulnerable that you will get it if you have a good exposure. Um, so you don't want to miss vaccinating. You don't want to miss using Ig if it's indicated. You want to make sure you really take care of your immunocompromised HIV kids. And you want to follow your community data. So if your uh, public health is saying, you know what, we're in an outbreak, let's immunize the people that are vulnerable. Okay. And just so everybody knows, the your HIV patients should receive the MMR vaccine or Ig depending on their immune status or vaccine history. Well said. Yeah, um, they may not mount a response, but as far as we know, there's no increased risk, so there's really no harm to giving them that vaccine. All right, we're getting towards the end. Good news: the recent wave of measles has resulted in some previously resistant parents deciding to vaccinate their kids. The vaccination may result in a subsequent wave of admissions to your ED due to some rare but possibly problematic MMR vaccine side effects. I'm going to tell you what Rosen says, and then Dr. Mink will tell you what she thinks. So Rosen talks about occasional anaphylaxis from the MMR vaccine, as well as toxic epidermal necrolysis at the vaccine site. Now, we all know how to handle anaphylaxis. 10, we manage supportively with hydration, infection control, and skin prevention protection. And the most important management step of all, 
of course, calling and begging people like Dr. Mink to please, please, please come admit the patient. Um, Dr. Mink, will you please tell us more about common side effects that you've seen from the MMR vaccine? The more usual adverse events that we see are high fever and febrile seizures, which occur usually about 10 days, 7 to 10 days after vaccination. And these kids can occasionally have transient rash. You can have rash without seizures. You can have seizures with a rash. So if you have a 15-month-old who shows up in your ER with a febrile seizure, one of the perfect times to say, did you get vaccinated recently? Because that's about the right time for MMR, and that's about the right age for having a febrile seizure. Mm. Um, and, of course, one of the more worrisome complications that we see post-vaccination, everyone has heard about, is the thrombocytopenia. Um, it's rare, but it does happen. Okay. So if you have a patient who recently was vaccinated and then they seized or they were vaccinated and now they're pale and they're lethargic, you send for bloods and suspect Absolutely. Suspect okay. for an adverse event. And I'd like to um, add to this talk is if you do see those adverse events, it's really helpful to report them to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS. It's online. It's a collaborative effort of the FDA and the CDC, and it helps us know what's out there. Because every now and then, even though we know the safety profile of most of the vaccines that are out and licensed and used so commonly, things pop up, so it's good to report. Fantastic. We should have disclosed that Dr. Mink used to work for the FDA. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is my disclosure. I, ha I have a record. <laughs> All right. So now we're on to the topic of who we should suspect measles in, since you just mentioned that suspicion. We should be on the lookout for measles right now because of lack of vaccination, but we should always be on the, let's say this vaccine, you know, this, this wave of outbreak blows over and people decide to start vaccinating their kids and everything goes back to what we all considered baseline. Um, even in certain groups, particularly travelers returning from endemic regions and immigrant populations, you might want to have a slightly higher index of suspicion. In the U.S. in the past, there have been measles outbreaks in, near the U.S. border. And then the two recent groups, of course, who are responsible for the most recent outbreaks are vaccine refusers and unvaccinated travelers from highly developed nations, which is an interesting point. <laughs> One of the recent smaller outbreaks was in San Diego from travelers to Switzerland. So mm -hmm. there was, again, vaccine refusers, a specific in that cluster that was a school that was a whole anti-vaccine school. Mm. So... It didn't surprise them, but it was a risk to um, those around them. Traveling to Switzerland. Okay. And let's say the, the kids who just came back from Switzerland and attend the acting vaccine school uh, show up in your ED. We talked about lab tests, serology, and PCR for detecting the virus. And as Dr. Ming said, it's best to check with your hospital and local, local public health departments to see what's even available. That's well said, yes. Okay. And so in our haste, now we can talk about the differential diagnosis. In our, in our haste to uh, excitedly uh, diagnose rubiola, let's not confuse it with roseola infantum, or sixth disease, which is another one of those diseases that has the viral exanthem. These kids with sixth disease will also have a high fever that breaks and then have a rash that appears on the head and neck and spreads to the extremities. So it has a somewhat similar appearance. The thing about it is these kids with sixth disease or roseola are going to be under three. And those macules are going to be rose-colored. Is that right? And their fever is high, high, high. They're actually not as usually ill-appearing. And the rash doesn't pop until the fever breaks, mm. if they follow the textbook. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yes. <laughs> and they won't be coughing, importantly. Roseola is a herpes virus. Exactly. So you're not going to get a cough. And you definitely won't, of course, get the coplex spots. 
So what you want to make sure is, as you mentioned with, with your colleagues that have been called in to a possible measles and it turned out to be Kawasaki's, you want to make sure that this child in front of us who had the very high fever and then the cough coryza conjunctivitis who then broke out in the rash does not in fact have a disease mimicking measles. And even if they aren't vaccinated, that doesn't mean that this child doesn't have Kawasaki's, Stevens-Johnson, cellulitis, staph-scalded skin syndrome, or some kind of gram-negative sepsis. Right. Those all can be quite confusing to sort out. Right. So those are the differentials. So I'll say it one more time. Differentials for measles, good differentials for measles, especially for the viral exanthem, Kawasaki, Stephen-Johnson, cellulitis, staph-scalded skin syndrome, and gram-negative sepsis. A good thing to remember with Kawasaki's, Kawasaki's and measles really look alike. The last thing on Kawasaki's is no other plausible diagnosis. Mm. And so this is when you really want to make sure you have your serologies. Okay. Good point. Thank you for that. So check for the disquamating rash. The yes. measles rash won't be disquamating like it will be in staff's called Stevens-Johnson's. And check for a fever that doesn't break in a couple days and the palmer erythema, which is in Kawasaki's. You won't get palmer erythema in measles. No, not typically. Yeah, and that fever goes on for several days, longer, traditionally, textbook. Textbook, it requires five days of fever. For Kawasaki's. Okay. Yes. Also, ask ask about recent you know, drug use, administration of another antibiotic, because drug eruptions happen in children and adults. And if they're a little bit older or their parents had them in the backpack and went for a nice walk in the woods, you can ask about Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Those are good, good things to keep in mind. That's why the history is so important. Travel, immunizations, known contacts, or animal exposures. There you go. And for older kids, teens, adults, consider rheumatologic diseases because they can also be heralded with a rash. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, so that's the list of differentials. And until recently, we would have suspected all these things first. Now we're suspecting measles first. It's an interesting turn of events. All right. Now, so once again, we're suspecting measles first, and after that, we'll start suspecting things like Stevens-Johnson, staph-scalded skin syndrome, Kawasaki's, rheumatologic disease, Rocky-mounted spotted fever, and drug eruptions. All right. Is there anything else you would like to talk about, Dr. Mink? One thing, um, that when you're talking about drug eruptions, if you read one of the descriptions of drug eruptions is morbilliform, which means right. measles-like. <laughs> so it can be quite tricky. The, um, sorry, the last thing I really like to emphasize is it's a reportable disease. Right. So it helps us um, as a community, as public health, as providers, as you're helping your colleagues to say, oh, wait, we have a measles case here, too. Um, so make sure you remember to report to your local health agency. They generally will report to the CDC. And right now, in some of the hospitals in our area, if you're ordering an IgM for measles, they're pretty much on their toes to make sure um, public health knows. Okay, that's great to know. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen listening at home, if you would like to hear more of these broadcasts about reemerging infectious disease, about the mumps or polio or any other disease we wish we had kissed goodbye a long time ago, please leave a comment. Thanks for listening and practice safely. Hi, everyone. This is Steve coming back on, first to say thank you to Dr. Gifford and Dr. Mink for that great episode. Hopefully that episode will empower you to think about this diagnosis more and be ready for the next outbreak. Before I go, I just wanted to mention our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. Check out their website for their new app, as well as the two newest issues this month. EM Practice features an issue on allergic reactions and anaphylaxis, while PEDS EM Practice talks about the approach to endotracheal intubation using video laryngoscopy in children. 
you know how much I love airway topics, so this is a can't-miss issue. As always, EM residents can get free access by going to ebmedicine.net slash embasic, and attendings can get a great discount as well. That's all I have for now. Until next time, as Mel Herbert from EMRAP likes to say, what you do matters. Take care.